Chapter Eight of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six, Part One. Joan of Naples by Alexander Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. While the Neapolitans were holding out against their enemy at the Porta Capuana, a strange scene was being enacted at the other side of the town. A scene that shows us in lively colors the violence and treachery of this barbarous age. The widow of Charles of Durazzo was shut up in the castle of Ovo, and awaiting in feverish anxiety the arrival of the ship that was to take her to the queen. The poor Princess Marie, pressing her weeping children to her heart, pale, with disheveled looks, fixed eyes and drawn lips, was listening for every sound, distracted between hope and fear. Suddenly steps resounded along the corridor. A friendly voice was heard. Marie fell upon her knees with a cry of joy. Her liberator had come. Renaud de Ball, admiral of the Provencal squadron, respectfully advanced, followed by his eldest son, Robert, and his chaplain. "'God, I thank thee!' exclaimed Marie, rising to her feet. Are "'We are saved!' "'One moment, madame,' said Renaud, stopping her. "'You are indeed saved, but upon one condition.' "'A condition?' murmured the princess in surprise. "'Listen, madame.' The king of Hungary, the avenger of André's murderers, the slayer of your husband, is at the gates of Naples. The people and soldiers will succumb as soon as their last gallant effort is spent. The army of the conqueror is about to spread desolation and death throughout the city by fire and the sword. This time the Hungarian butcher will spare no victims. He will kill the mother before her children's eyes, the children in their mother's arms. The drawbridge of this castle is up, and there are none on guard. Every man who can wield a sword is now at the other end of the town. Woe to you, Marie of Durazzo, if the King of Hungary shall remember that you preferred his rival to him. "'But have you not come here to save me?' cried Marie in a voice of anguish. "'Joan, my sister, did she not command you to take me to her?' "'Your sister is no longer in the position to give orders,' replied Renaud with a disdainful smile. She had nothing for me but thanks, because I saved her life and her husband's too, when he fled like a coward before the man whom he had dared to challenge to a duel. Marie looked fixedly at the admiral to assure herself that it was really he who thus arrogantly talked about his masters. But she was terrified at his imperturbable expression, and said gently, "'As I owe my life and my children's lives solely to your generosity, I am grateful to you beyond all measure.' but we must hurry my lord every moment i fancy i hear cries of vengeance and you would not leave me now a prey to my brutal enemy god forbid madame i will save you at the risk of my life but i have said already i impose a condition what is it said marie with forced calm that you marry my son on the instant in the presence of our reverend chaplain rash man cried Marie, recoiling, her face scarlet with indignation and shame. "'You dare to speak thus to the sister of your legitimate sovereign? Give thanks to God that I will pardon an insult offered, as I know, in a moment of madness. Try by your devotion to make me forget what you have said.' The Count, without one word, signed to his son and a priest to follow, and prepared to depart. As he crossed the threshold, Marie ran to him, and, clasping her hands, prayed him in God's name never to forsake her. Renaud stopped. "'I might easily take my revenge,' he said, "'for you are front when you refused my son in your pride. 
but that business I leave to Louis of Hungary, who will acquit himself, no doubt, with credit. "'Have mercy on my poor daughters!' cried the princess. "'Mercy at least for my poor babes, if my own tears cannot move you!' "'If you love your children,' said the admiral, frowning, "'you would have done your duty at once.' "'But I do not love your son!' cried Marie, proud but trembling. "'Oh, God! Must a wretched woman's heart be thus trampled? You, father, a minister of truth and justice, tell this man that God must not be called on to witness an oath dragged from the weak and helpless.' She turned to the admiral's son and added, sobbing, "'You are young. Perhaps you have loved. One day, no doubt, you will love. I appeal to your loyalty as a young man.' do your courtesy as a knight to all your noblest impulses join me and turn your father away from this fatal project you have never seen me before you do not know but that in my secret heart i love another your pride should be revolted at the sight of an unhappy woman casting herself at your feet and imploring your favour and protection one word from you robert and i shall bless you every moment of my life the memory of you will be graven in my heart, like the memory of a guardian angel, and my children shall name you nightly in their prayers, asking God to grant your wishes. Oh, say, will you not save me? Who knows, later on I may love you, with real love. I must obey my father, replied Robert, never lifting his eyes to the lovely suppliant. The priest was silent. Two minutes passed, and these four persons, each absorbed in his own thoughts, stood motionless as statues carved at the four corners of a tomb. Marie was thrice tempted to throw herself into the sea, but a confused distant sound suddenly struck upon her ears. Little by little it drew nearer. Voices were more distinctly heard. Women in the street were uttering cries of distress. "'Fly! Fly! God has forsaken us! The Hungarians are in the town!' And the tears of Marie's children were the answer to these cries and little margaret raising her hands to her mother expressed her fear in speech that was far beyond her years renaud without one look at this touching picture drew his son towards the door stay said the princess extending her hand with a solemn gesture as god sends no other aid to my children it is his will that the sacrifice be accomplished she fell on her knees before the priest bending her head like a victim who offers her neck to the executioner Robert de Beau took his place beside her, and the priest pronounced the formula that united them forever, consecrating the infamous deed by a sacrilegious blessing. "'All is over,' murmured Marie of Durazzo, looking tearfully on her little daughters. "'No, all is not yet over,' said the admiral harshly, pushing her towards another room. "'Before we leave, the marriage must be consummated.' "'Oh, just God!' cried the princess in a voice torn with anguish, and she fell swooning to the floor. Renaud de Beau directed his ships towards Marseilles, where he hoped to get his son crowned Count de Provence, thanks to his strange marriage with Marie of Durazzo. But this cowardly act of treason was not to go unpunished. The wind rose with fury and drove him towards Gaeta, where the queen and her husband had just arrived. Renaud bade his sailors keep in the open, threatening to throw any man into the sea who dared to disobey him. The crew at first murmured. Soon cries of mutiny rose on every side. The admiral, seeing he was lost, passed from threats to prayers. But the princess, who had recovered her senses at the first thunderclap, dragged herself up to the bridge and screamed for help. "'Come to me, Louis! Come, my barons! 
death to the cowardly wretches who have outraged my honor and louis of tarentum jumped into a boat followed by some ten of his bravest men and rowing rapidly reached the ship then marie told him her story in a word and he turned upon the admiral a lightning glance as though defying him to make any defence wretch cried the king transfixing the traitor with his sword then he had the son loaded with chains and also the unworthy priest who had served as accomplice to the admiral who now expiated his odious crime by death he took the princess and her children in his boat and re-entered the harbour the hungarians however forcing one of the gates of naples marched triumphant to castel nuovo but as they were crossing the piazza della Correggi, the neapolitans perceived that those horses were so weak and the men so reduced by all they had undergone during the siege of aversa that a mere puff of wind would dispense this phantom-like army changing from a state of panic to real daring the people rushed upon their conquerors and drove them outside the walls by which they had just entered the sudden violent reaction broke the pride of the king of hungary and made him more tractable when clement the sixth decided that he ought at last to interfere a truce was concluded first from the month of february thirteen fifty to the beginning of april thirteen fifty one and the next year this was converted into a real peace joan paying to the king of hungary the sum of three hundred thousand florins for the expenses of the war after the hungarians had gone the pope sent a legate to crown joan and louis of tarentum and the twenty-fifth of may the day of pentecost was chosen for the ceremony all contemporary historians speak enthusiastically of this magnificent fete its details have been immortalized by giotto in the frescoes of the church which from this day bore the name of l'incoronata a general amnesty was declared for all who had taken part in the late wars on either side and the king and queen were greeted with shouts of joy as they solemnly paraded beneath the canopy with all the barons of the kingdom in their train but the day's joy was impaired by an accident which to a superstitious people seemed of evil augury louis of tarentum riding a richly caparisoned horse had just passed the porta petruccia when some ladies looking out from a high window threw such a quantity of flowers at the king that his frightened steed reared and broke his rein louis could not hold him so jumped lightly to the ground but the crown fell at his feet and was broken into three pieces on that very day the only daughter of joan and louis died but the king not wishing to sadden the brilliant ceremony with show of mourning kept up the jousts and tournaments for three days and in memory of his coronation instituted the order of chevaliers de nude but from that day begun with an omen so sad his life was nothing but a series of disillusions after sustaining wars in sicily and apulia and quelling the insurrection of louis of durazzo who ended his days in the castle of ovo louis of tarentum worn out by a life of pleasure his health undermined by slow disease overwhelmed with domestic trouble succumbed to an acute fever on the fifth of june thirteen sixty two at the age of forty-two his body had not been laid in its royal tomb at saint dominico before several aspirants appeared to the hand of the queen one was the prince of majorca the handsome youth we have already spoken of he bore her off triumphant over all rivals including the son of the king of france james of aragon had one of those faces of melancholy sweetness which no woman can resist great troubles nobly born had thrown as it were a funereal veil over his youthful days more than thirteen years he had spent shut in an iron cage when by the aid of a false key he had escaped from his dreadful prison he wandered from one court to another seeking aid it is even said that he was reduced to the lowest degree of poverty and forced to beg his bread the young stranger's beauty and his adventures combined had impressed both joan and marie at the court of avignon 
Marie especially had conceived a violent passion for him, all the more so for the efforts she made to conceal it in her own bosom. Ever since James of Aragon came to Naples, the unhappy princess, married with a dagger at her throat, had desired to purchase her liberty at the expense of crime. Followed by four armed men, she entered the prison where Robert de Beau was still suffering for a fault more his father's than his own. Marie stood before the prisoner, her arms crossed, her cheeks livid, her lips trembling. It was a terrible interview. This time it was she who threatened, the man who entreated pardon. Marie was deaf to his prayers, and the head of the luckless man fell bleeding at her feet, and her men threw the body into the sea. But God never allows a murder to go unpunished. James preferred the queen to her sister, and the widow of Charles of Durazzo gained nothing by her crime but the contempt of the man she loved, and a bitter remorse which brought her, while yet young, to the tomb. Joan was married in turn to James of Aragon, son of the King of Majorca, and to Otto of Brunswick, of the imperial family of Saxony. We will pass rapidly over these years and come to the denouement of this history of crime and expiation. James, parted from his wife, continued his stormy career after a long contest in Spain with Peter the Cruel, who had usurped his kingdom. About the end of the year 1375 he died near Navarre. Otto also could not escape the divine vengeance which hung over the court of Naples, but to the end he valiantly shared the queen's fortunes. Joan, since she had no lawful heir, adopted her nephew, Charles de la Paix, so called after the peace of Trevisa. He was the son of Louis de Ra, who, after rebelling against Louis of Tarentum, had died miserably in the castle of Ovo. The child would have shared his father's fate had not Joan interceded to spare his life, loaded him with kindness, and married him to Margaret, the daughter of her sister Marie, and her cousin Charles, who was put to death by the king of Hungary. Serious differences arose between the queen and one of her former subjects, Bartolomeo Prigiani, who had become pope under the name of Urban VI. Annoyed by the queen's opposition, the pope one day angrily said he would shut her up in a convent. Joan, to avenge the insult, openly favored Clement VII, the anti-pope, and offered him a home in her own castle. When pursued by Pope Urban's army, he had taken refuge at Fondi. But the people rebelled against Clement, and killed the Archbishop of Naples, who had helped to elect him. They broke the cross that was carried in procession before the anti-pope, and hardly allowed him time to make his escape on shipboard to Provence. Urban declared that Joan was now dethroned and released her subjects from their oath of fidelity to her, bestowing the crown of Sicily and Jerusalem upon Charles de la Paix, who marched on Naples with eight thousand Hungarians. Joan, who could not believe in such base ingratitude, sent out his wife Margaret to meet her adopted son. Though she might have kept her as a hostage, and his two children, Ladislaus and Joan, who became later the second queen of that name, but the victorious army soon arrived at the gates of Naples, and Charles blockaded the queen in her castle, forgetting in his ingratitude that she had saved his life and loved him like a mother. Joan, during the siege, endured all the worst fatigues of war that any soldier has to bear. She saw her faithful friends fall around her, wasted by hunger or decimated by sickness. When all food was exhausted, dead and decomposed bodies were thrown into the castle that they might pollute the air she breathed. Otto, with his troops, was kept at Aversa, Louis of Anjou, the brother of the King of France, whom she had named as her successor when she disinherited her nephew, never appeared to help her, and the Provencal ships from Clement VII were not due to arrive until all hope must be over. Joan asked for a truce of five days, promising that if Otto had not come to relieve her in that time, she would surrender the fortress. On the fifth day, Otto's army appeared on the side of Piedigrata. 
The fight was sharp on both sides, and Joan from the top of a tower could follow with her eyes the cloud of dust raised by her husband's horse in the thickest of the battle. The victory was long uncertain. At length the prince made so bold an onset upon the royal standard, in his eagerness to meet his enemy hand to hand, that he plunged into the very middle of the army, and found himself pressed on every side. Covered with blood and sweat, his sword broken in his hand, he was forced to surrender. An hour later Charles was writing to his uncle, the King of Hungary, that Joan had fallen into his power, and he only awaited his majesty's orders to decide her fate. It was a fine May morning. The queen was under guard in the castle of Aversa. Otto had obtained his liberty on condition of his quitting Naples, and Louis of Anjou had at last got together an army of fifty thousand men and was marching in hot haste to the conquest of the kingdom. None of this news had reached the ears of Joan, who for some days had lived in complete isolation. The spring lavished all her glory on these enchanted plains, which have earned the name of the blessed and happy country Campania Felite. The orange trees were covered with sweet white blossoms, the cherries laden with ruby fruit, the olives with young emerald leaves, the pomegranate feathery with red bells, the wild mulberry, the evergreen laurel, all the strong budding vegetation, needing no help from man to flourish in this spot privileged by nature, made one great garden here and there interrupted by little hidden runlets. It was a forgotten Eden in this corner of the world. Joan at her window was breathing in the perfumes of spring, and her eyes, misty with tears, rested on a bed of flowery verdure. A light breeze, keen and balmy, blew upon her burning brow, and offered a great coolness to her damp and fevered cheeks. Distant melodious voices, refrains of well-known songs, were all that disturbed the silence of the poor little room. The solitary nest, where life was passing away in tears and repentance. A life the most brilliant and eventful of a century of splendor and unrest. The queen was slowly reviewing in her mind all her life since she ceased to be a child, fifty years of disillusionment and suffering. She thought first of her happy, peaceful childhood, her grandfather's blind affection, the pure joys of her days of innocence, the exciting games with her little sister and tall cousins. Then she shuddered at the earliest thought of marriage, the constraint, the loss of liberty, the bitter regrets. She remembered with horror the deceitful words murmured in her ear, designed to sow the seeds of corruption and vice that were to poison her whole life. Then came the burning memories of her first love, the treachery and desertion of Robert of Cabane, the moments of madness passed like a dream in the arms of Bertrand of Artois, the whole drama up to its tragic denouement showed as in letters of fire on the dark background of her somber thoughts. Then arose cries of anguish in her soul, even as on that terrible fatal night she heard the voice of Andre asking mercy from his murderers. A long, deadly silence followed his awful struggle, and the queen saw before her eyes the carts of infamy and the torture of her accomplices. All the rest of this vision was persecution, flight, exile, remorse, punishments from God and curses from the world. Around her was a frightful solitude. Husbands, lovers, kindred, friends, all were dead. All she had loved or hated in the world were now no more. Her joy, pain, desire, and hope had vanished forever. The poor queen, unable to free herself from these visions of woe, violently tore herself away from the awful reverie, and kneeling at a prie-dieu, prayed with fervor. She was still beautiful, in spite of her extreme pallor. The noble lines of her face kept their pure oval. The fire of repentance in her great black eyes lit them up with superhuman brilliance and the hope of pardon played in a heavenly smile upon her lips. Suddenly the door of the room where Joan was so earnestly praying opened with a dull sound. Two Hungarian barons in armor entered and signed to the queen to follow them. 
Joan arose silently and obeyed, but a cry of pain went up from her heart when she recognized the place where both André and Charles of Durazzo had died a violent death. But she collected her forces and asked calmly why she was brought hither. For all answer, one of the men showed her a cord of silk and gold. "'May the will of a just God be done,' cried Joan, and fell upon her knees. Some minutes later she had ceased to suffer. This was the third corpse that was thrown over the balcony at Aversa. End of chapter 8 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia End of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 1, Joan of Naples by Alexander Dumas Translated by George Burnham Ives